just about you know shepherding that and polishing that into something that connects with people purpose tea podcast speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders people who are making the world a better place here's your host mark longbottom welcome to purpose tea with matt siegel founder and creative director of green thumb media Matt is an American who is living off-grid in Australia. He's a former journalist, TV producer, reporting from conflict zones for two decades. He also speaks Russian fluently and has a very unique perspective on the world, a passion for sustainability which comes through in his business. Enjoy this episode. Don't forget to share with friends, family, and colleagues. Um, And if you're on Apple Podcasts, hit subscribe. It makes a real difference. Enjoy the episode. Matt Siegel, welcome to Purposely Podcast. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. You are the founder and creative director of Green Thumb Media. What's its mission? What's its purpose? Our mission at Green Thumb is to work with purpose-driven, um, ethical and sustainable businesses and brands and not-for-profits um, and help them communicate uh, to potential customers and, and clients using the highest quality uh, video and visual communications that we can. Visual or video is increasingly important and there's sort of gone quite bold predictions about the importance of that communicating messages, developing and expanding a brand. Like there's real belief that actually video or film content will be really important to businesses in the future, isn't it? Oh yeah, actually. Uh, you know, it might not surprise you that I have some stats here with me um, <laughs> at hand. Um, you know, 64% of businesses said that in the last uh, 12 months, uh, a video on Facebook had resulted in a new client. 83% of video marketers say videos help them generate leads. You know, 95% of uh, video marketers said that they they felt they'd increase their understanding of a product or, or a service using video. I mean, there I could kind of go on and on. It's no real secret to, to people who are in marketing and who are in communications. It's not just a nice to have at this point. It's a must have for brands that want to, you know, reach the widest audience and not just reach that audience, but forge a connection with them that is uh, genuine and impactful and, and long term. So, yeah, I mean, every trend tells us that, you know, video is, is, you know, if it has not already taken over, it's, it's in the process of taking over the marketing world and, and the internet in kind of general. People hire you because you understand their mission and your services align, the way you work aligns with their values. Like that's, that's kind of how you set yourself up, which kind of means that you won't work with others and you won't suit others for the same reason. Yeah, I think that that's right. You know, when I founded Green Thumb, I I had in mind a really clear vision of the kinds of businesses and brands that we wanted to work with, people who were setting out to make a difference in the world. And, you know, there are a lot of problems that need fixing in the world at the moment. That's not a, a secret. And a lot of the really important changes that are taking place are being driven by the private sector. It's not necessarily how I would set up the world, being an old lefty. Um, I would love to see our governments be more robust in, in their actions. But, you know, that's not the world at the moment that we live in. And, you know, it's it's pretty amazing to see some of the huge leaps that have been 
taken in, in recent years by companies completely transforming, you know, old sectors, companies like Tesla that have turned a very polluting industry. The auto industry is still polluting, but they've, Tesla's example has dragged so much of that sector into the kind of, you know, clean car, clean, clean energy, electric car revolution. Those are the kind of brands that, you know, we want to be working with. It's not just tech. Uh, it can be in fashion. It can be in food and beverage. It can be in clean tech. It can be in energy. You know, businesses and brands that are looking at these problems that we have and trying to find novel ways to solve them, those are the people that we want to be working with. If someone came to you and, or have they come to you and, and you've, you sort of suspected it feels a little bit like greenwashing or sort of ESG washing, they've, they want to tell a story, they want your skills and abilities, your services, but you sense that it's not for the right reasons. Um, has that happened? How do you, how do you avoid that? I guess that's by understanding your client, but. Yeah, it's absolutely happened. And, you know, we have had to have some of those tough conversations with prospective clients. Uh, you know, usually or often it's, it's disappointing because, you know, they come to you with some of the biggest budgets. <laughs> and so you get really excited, but we have a really strong process of due diligence. We look into, into the backgrounds of everyone that we work with. Um, not in an invasive way, but we, you know, in an open source way, uh, we want to make sure that there aren't those kind of uh, those kind of issues in the backgrounds of, of a company. It might be that, that, you know, a company that approaches us is spun off from a larger parent that has questionable practices, or you know, it might be the case that members of their board, you know, come from uh, sectors that we're not, you know, comfortable of working with. Yeah, makes that makes absolute sense. And you, just for our listeners, um, you are an American who's sitting in the, on the east coast of Australia. You're off grid. You're living a sort of eco life, but life didn't start in Australia for you, did it? It started in what? Was, did you grow up in Portland? Where was the? Where did you grow up? I was born and raised in Manhattan, actually, uh, in the heart of New York City. I, I did move to Portland um, for uni. Uh, when I was 18, and I lived on the West Coast then for for 10 years. So I, I do consider myself, you know, a kind of hybrid New Yorker, um, Oregonian. I, I love Portland. It's it's such an amazing town with just like the best people and the most amazing art, uh, and you know, a really progressive and warm city. So I, I loved going to uni there. I loved living there. And uh, that's, you know, part of where I got my start in, in the kind of more technical side of, of production, working in, in uh, music production and film post-production. And, and I, yeah, I worked in that for, for some time before heading overseas when I was about 25 and uh, getting involved uh, uh, in journalism and becoming a journalist. And, and a lot of Americans, you know, often don't head overseas because you know it's a let's face it's a big country there's a lot of different weather patterns there's a lot of different options and culture and opportunity but you were determined to go abroad and you wanted to and by this stage you were looking at what career path might hold yeah it was funny i you know i moved <clears throat> i had planned on going into academia um after i did my my degree and and part of go, moving overseas i moved to moscow in uh, 2005 and and part of that was to kind of uh, improve my language skills with the um, I speak 
I speak Russian now, um, <laughs> after many years in that part of the world and, and an undergraduate practice. But I very quickly realized, you know, when I, when I moved over there that, that, I, uh, academia probably wasn't going to be for me. I was much more interested right off the bat in what was happening right in front of me. And, and that kind of old adage of, you know, writing the first draft of, of history, you know, what they say about journalists. I fell in with a crowd of journalists and uh, who were very generous um, with, you know, their knowledge and their time. And, you know, a couple of years after that, three, three years after that, I suppose, almost four years after that, I was writing for the New York Times in that part of the world, first in covering the conflict in uh, Georgia with Russia's invasion of Georgia in, in August of 2008, uh, and then moving forward, stuck around that part of the world as a journalist uh, in Central Asia and the former Soviet Union until 2010, uh, 11, sorry, 2011, uh, when my wife, who's Australian, uh, and I moved back here to Sydney, not not here where I live now, but to, to Sydney, and I continued my career. In terms of your career as a journalist, and, and you, like you talked about what was right in front of you and, and writing about that, were you a skilled writer? Were you a brave person? Were you sort of dogged with stories? Like, what sort of journalist were you? I have enough of the tall poppy about me at this point that I'm not, you know, I, I, would, I don't know that I would want to call myself a great writer or, uh, or talk about myself in that way. I was somebody who was really passionate about helping people and telling, you know, helping people who perhaps didn't have the ability to tell their own story and in the hopes that, you know, that could um, have an impact, a positive impact. I, uh, in the time that I was in that part of the world, you know, there was a lot of conflict. There was a lot of events that we covered that were, that were required, you know, you to, to run into the direction that everyone else is running away from. I don't know if that's bravery. I don't think so. Cause <laughs> I think in general, I'm, I don't, wouldn't describe myself as the bravest person in the world, but, uh, for what, for whatever it's worth, I did find that when I was doing that job and I could shut off that part of my brain that, you know, might have been the self-preservation part in favor of, you know, turning on that part uh, that was wanting to help people and connect with people and tell their stories. I, I was able to do it. And storytelling and hearing people's stories, it's just something I've always been kind of obsessed with. And was being American a positive thing? Was that a, a challenging thing when you're, you know, in the Eastern Bloc, you're, was that, you know, what was the response to you at the front line? It could be, you know, I mean, luckily enough, you know, I do speak pretty fluent Russian, which I think mitigated a lot of that hassle. But certainly at that point in time, like being an American abroad and in that part of the world where, you know, Americans are not always the most popular people could definitely be difficult uh, and it could get you in trouble. There were a couple of occasions where I, um, luckily Russians can't really tell the difference between different accents in English. So even if they speak English, they have a very difficult, you know, really, really hard time telling the difference. So I, I would just tell most people if, if I thought that there was <laughs> going to be any trouble, I would tell people I was Canadian or, or Irish. Yeah, I have felt that over the 20, you know, years that I've been abroad almost. I think most people really, you know, most people like Americans, even if they don't necessarily like what our, you know, governments um, might do. But I think now, you know, more than anything, you know, you, ha you have people who sort of feel sad for us um, yeah. because of what's 
kind of become of our country over the last, you know, 20 years, uh, especially the last 10 years. And being a journalist for all that time and, and imagine working to incredibly tight deadlines, um, work somewhat dominating your existence. Did you, and you're not a journalist now, um, did you grow in disillusioned by it? Was it always a shelf life to it? I would have done journalism for the rest of my life if journalism was still what it was when I started. But I was probably at the very tail end of the kind of old world of journalism where we had budgets, where you were expected to go out and report out in the field, and nothing was as important as getting the story. Uh, and I love that kind of journalism that really speaks to, you know, I spoke to who I certainly who I was at that time. And I think to who I am in general, wanting to hear people's stories, wanting to help, uh, wanting to see new things and experience new things, learn about them and, and tell people about them. But increasingly, you know, as all of the media's, you know, traditional legacy media's um revenues disappeared with you know the rise of the internet and the the loss of all the traditional advertising revenue i just watched the budgets get hollowed out and it got to the point where i was spending more time behind a desk as quickly as it happened as quick you know as that decline happened I, and it showed no signs of you know slowing down i it definitely dawned on me that if I was going to get out, you know, that was probably the time to get out. And I was going to have to find a different way to, to contribute. Yeah. And so this coincided with meeting your now wife um, and, and the move to Australia. Is that oh, right? a little bit of overlap. Yeah. My amazing wife, uh, I met her in 2009 uh, when I, on a trip to Australia, uh, I was taking R&R and &R, um, I think it was after the war in Af I'd been covering the war in Afghanistan and I needed a break, came to Australia, met the love of my life, kidnapped her back with me <laughs> to Central Asia. And we've been together ever since. But I continued to do journalism and, and documentary filmmaking for the first maybe six or seven years. Yeah, probably six, six years, seven years that I was in Australia. So I was the New York Times correspondent in Australia for the first few years and then Reuters hired me to be their chief correspondent in this part of the world. And then in my spare time, because I had so much of it, uh, I also <laughs> was working on documentaries for Channel 10, for SBS, uh, and others as a producer and a, and a director. Yeah, one in particular I was going to ask you about was go back to where you come from. So it was an SBS documentary. Tell us about that. Yeah, I was incredibly lucky to be brought on to work on the second series of Go Back to Where You Came From, which was a huge success here in Australia and a really powerful piece of documentary filmmaking, really, you know, serial documentary filmmaking. It was a story, you know, where we, we basically found, uh, you know, we have had this debate in Australia for many years. It's uh, about immigration. Uh, this is really at the height of that when boats were coming over and lots of, unfortunately, lots of people were dying, lots of people were suffering in immigration detention. And we took Australians who, you know, were opposed to immigration, um, or actually, you know, for our series, well, so the show uh, has had, did two or three series. It started out taking sort of everyday Australians who were opposed to immigration and, and sending them back to the countries where most Australian immigrants, you know, uh, at that time were coming from to kind of 
give them a firsthand experience. And then uh, in the second series, we did that with like high profile Australians, actors, and you know, uh, Radio Shock Jock and Angry Anderson. Yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting combination of people. Um, but I think you know what everyone seems to have experienced, come away from it with, is a little bit better understanding and a little bit more compassion for what drives you know people to leave their uh homes and and communities and cultures and everything that they know to seek yeah. uh safety in a country like Australia and when that's you know an abstract on the television news or on talkback radio it's very easy to you know think of these people as numbers but when you know you're actually out there seeing why they're uh, doing that, you know, taking that decision, then, you know, it has a really powerful impact on people. And I was incredibly proud to work on, on that program as, as a producer. And a lot of people don't re- understand that Australia, if you're a refugee and you say you're in Afghanistan, you may be sent to Australia, but you go via Indonesia and you sit in a, in a, in a camp often for an unknown period of time. Um, for some people, years, years at a time before you get released either to Australia or somewhere else. And, Two other series that you're involved in, which jumped out, was The Truth with Hamish McDonald. And then also a name that really jumped out at me, which is um, a, a, someone, a, a crime lord <laughs> called Chopper Reed. And a really powerful ca- character, also a musician. But yeah, tell us, tell yeah, us a bit about sure. those well, two. Um, Hamish um, you know, is a good friend of mine and uh, you know, has a similar background to mine in terms of um, you know, being a foreign correspondent. And so I was asked to come onto that show and and uh, help with yeah some of its development and production. What we were trying to do on that show was you know tackle take some issues that people thought that they really understood and put a different spin on them. So we are so often in the world today. So sure we know what the truth is about something, but you know if you dig into things and you learn it a little bit more, you might be surprised with you know what you found out. One of the episodes, for example, we sent. Hamish to to the Chernobyl exclusion zone, which is a place that I've actually visited as a journalist as well and been really struck by. And, you know, we're asking this question about, you know, nuclear power versus coal fired power and and kind of the the perceived wisdoms. I, I won't, you know, do the whole show, but I was very proud of of, you know, where these where those episodes came out and Hamish has gone on to do, you know, incredible things after that. That was kind of just before he uh, his career, you know, that was, yeah, just as his career was really taking off. So, you know, very proud of, of him. And yeah, Uncle Chop Chop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I actually became friendly with Chopper Reed when I, I did a profile on him for the New York Times, um, for the, the Saturday profile. So just for our listeners, what, what did Chopper Reed do? Like he was. Yeah. So, so sorry. For those of you who haven't seen the, the fabulous film Chopper, which I, I definitely, you know, would recommend or who aren't aware of his, uh, his media exploits, uh, Mark, um, Brandon Chopper Reed was an underworld figure in, in the kind of Melbourne, uh, criminal milieu. Uh, he, uh, in the, in the eighties and seventies and eighties and early nineties, Mark uh, was a big guy and his shtick was, was robbing criminals of their ill-gotten gains. So, you know, sort of similar to the wire, um, to 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Robin, Robin Hood. Hood. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, you know, he was a really interesting character. He, he wrote a number of books after he kind of reformed and kind of became a big, you know, media, a beloved media figure in Australia um, in a very strange way that says a lot, I think, <laughs> about Australia, given that he was, you know, like a multiple alleged multiple murderer and torturer of criminals. But he was very charismatic. And I can tell you that firsthand. I, I spent sort of three or four days with him and his wife down in, in Carlton, who cost 10 years ago, probably. And I wrote a big, a big profile on him. And while we were together, you know, we, we just kind of hit it off and we kept in touch. And, and while we were together, I remember him saying, oh, you know, yeah, I'm going to record a country, a country music album. And I thought, gosh, that's a really good <laughs> idea for a film. And I, at the time I was, um, I was producing and directing, you know, as a freelancer, but one of the places I made films for was the feed on SBS. And I approached them with the idea and they loved it. So I went down and, and yeah, directed a film, which you can find. I think on SBS's website and on YouTube, Chopper Sings the Blues. Uh, and it actually turned out that this was the last, I think I was the last person to, to interview him before he died. Uh, he was not well when we were, when we were filming, but Mark was a really interesting character. And that's like the, you know, with my career, I've been so lucky to meet people like, you know, Mark who are, are just so different and interesting and have their own story to tell and are not one dimensional. You know, um, and and that's the great thing about storytelling. One thing about him that surprised you did was say full full grip on reality, or he told himself his own reality. I think Mark bent reality to suit him his needs. I, he had a really rough, you know, childhood. Um, there was a lot of abuse. There was a lot of really difficult circumstances. I think he realized probably that he could bend, you know, through force of will and force of character and force sometimes of <laughs> physical force, that he could bend, you know, reality to his his will. And he certainly, you know, whether it was in the criminal underworld or in his, you know, many books which, you know, were very successful, I think he was able to reshape reality around him, which is, you know, it's a very that's a very 21st century thing to be able to do. He was probably ahead of his time, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sadly. And what, well, you know, suddenly find yourself living in Australia in love and, you know, developing a family. What, what is it like for you in Australia? Do you, is it a place you feel at home in? Yeah, look, I, I love, I love Australia. I'm, I am really, you know, proud to live here and happy to live here. Every country has its, its problems. We are, you know, we have no shortage of them, but I have been, you know, very welcomed here. I've built a life here. I, I often tell people, you know, I liked Australia so much. I decided to make two new Australians, my, my two daughters. I, um, you know, especially when you compare it to where I grew up, a lot of the issues that I had with the States, you know, with it being a country where, for example, we'll they believe that owning a gun is a universal human right, but healthcare is not. Obviously, a lot of those problems were solved for me living in Australia. And, and I think in a lot of ways, it's much more in line as a country with, you know, with, with who I am and what my, my values and beliefs are. That having been said, you know, uh, obviously, uh, nowhere is perfect. And um, we have things that we need to fix. But, you know, I feel like Australians are people who don't shy away from 
like putting in the hard work to to fix problems. So yeah, and I, I, I love I love Australia and I'm incredibly lucky. I mean, like you said earlier, I live off grid. I, I live up in the Byron hinterland um, on a beautiful property. Actually, the property where my wife grew up, we are totally off grid, have an amazing, you know, solar system um, that provides everything that we need. My my girls get to run around um, in the bush, uh, usually not wearing any clothes. Um, and, you know, there are roos and wallabies everywhere and goannas and all kinds of beautiful uh, wildlife. So it's in, in a lot of ways, it's really idyllic. I feel very lucky to live in Australia. And so you get away f- from Australia f- from time to time. You've just been in the States recently. Do you still love the big cities? Do you love going back to New York, back to Portland? But you're you're very happy when you come back to your your five acres or so? I think um, I... Uh, you know, I've lived in lots of big cities. Uh, I'm from a very big city. There are elements of the big city that are fabulous. I mean, just last week, I was in New York, and I went and saw Bell and Sebastian play in Central Park, just outside of my mom's uh, apartment, just where, you know, where I grew up with my you know, oldest and dearest friend after having just an absolutely you know, gorgeous meal and um, taking my girls to the Museum of Natural History. So, you know, all of that in one day, you just can't get anywhere else. And, you know, I, I do love that. The other side of it, though, I, I'm definitely not a city person anymore. I'm, I, you know, we, I often travel down to Sydney or to Melbourne for shoots um, or up to Brisbane, uh, you know, for shoots with clients of ours at Green Thumb. And, you know, I enjoy it. I'm there for a few days, but I'm I'm always really happy to get back to the bush. And I, I don't know, I, I may be like fully broken for cities now <laughs> after um, after living in paradise for for this long. I love the fact that when you were talking, there was some wildlife <laughs> sort of came into earshot in the background oh, yeah. as well. Though, like I, I actually couldn't you know couldn't work out what that was, but it sounded really interesting in, a, in an Australian interesting way. I think it was a kookaburra, but it could have been any number of things. We are in a on the very edge of a national park and and wildlife preserve so we have just incredible wildlife. i'm I'm looking out my window in my office right now at at a couple of kookaburras and uh a couple of roos so yeah now we're we're really really lucky up here and and running your own shop you've got your own company your wife's involved as well is that right you've got staff that are working virtually is she the sort of are you the talent she's the brain <laughs> i mean she's she's all of it she's she's the talent she's the brains she's she's got it all um i am just you know i'm just a very little part no she you know my wife is brilliant her background she she does come from an academic and public health background working at the university of melbourne and university of sydney in some really um amazing research and project management positions i've been very lucky that she has joined um dan my partner and myself to help us uh keep the ship running straight uh and in the direction that it should be Uh, i am you know i think it probably is fair to say that you know i am the uh if not the talent and the creative uh, and like most creatives, you know, numbers and, <laughs> you know, budgets and all that stuff, I can do it. It's not my passion. It's not my zone of genius. I'm having Emma, you know, available to help us with that kind of stuff and to help our clients um, to make sure that everything, you know, because film production is is incredibly complex. Um, you know, you're, you're working in multiple locations with 
you know, big crews, lots of equipment over, you know, sometimes, you know, reasonably long time lines. So you really need somebody with the brain like hers to make sure that everything, you know, not only runs smoothly, but that the clients, you know, we want them to feel heard and seen and, and to be as involved or not involved as they want in the, in the process. And yeah, having them uh, around to do that is, uh, we're very, very lucky. Yeah, what you produce is, is real quality. It's, it's high end, um, using expensive equipment. There's a lot of time invested in it. And counter to that, there's a sort of thinking going through that, you know, just turn the iPhone on, point it in the right direction and start shooting. How do those two things sit together for you? Like what, what would you be, would you be, would you have an argument? Um, or a stand on that? Look, absolutely. I, I think that there is 100% a place for that kind of raw communication. You know, I, I often tell prospective clients of ours that we're not trying to replace, you know, you, you may have a social media manager who does, you know, your 30 second, 15 second kind of hits every day. That That's kind of, that's not really what we do. You know, when you want to communicate and really put your best foot forward when you want to, you know, when you have something important to say, when you want to say it in the most compelling way possible, that's where we come in. And, you know, is there somebody who can do that with an iPhone? I mean, iPhones are great. They've got much better. I think, you know, I have seen a couple of things online where, you know, people have shot really high-end productions with iPhones. But what people don't understand about that is that the money that they haven't spent on the camera is the money that they've spent on lighting and production. So just pointing an iPhone at something um, isn't going to look very good without spending the time with production design and um, lighting design and implementation. So, you know, there it's a big enough space that there are, you know, small iPhone productions done, you know, in a you know, nine by 16 format can absolutely exist alongside, you know, what we do, which is closer to, you know, uh, you know, what you would have had, uh, like a a high end, you know, television commercial or, uh, you know, mini documentary style branded content, you know, that you see that is, is visually compelling and stands on its own. And that's really what we want, you know, what we want to bring to people. I mean, everything that we produce, we want people to, if they stumbled across it and didn't realize that it was, you know, a, a, a sort of paid, uh, you know, advertisement, you know, we would want them to to just enjoy watching it and and to, you know, engage with it on its own merit and and engage that message behind it. You know, that that level of authenticity and that level of production value is really what we're going for and everything that we do we want we want these productions to stand on their own and to be engaging interesting pieces of content yeah but with a but improving the environment um society with that purpose and impact yeah uh, wrapped that's in. it you know yeah. i mean the kind of brands that we work with were we're lucky because they most of them are doing what they're doing for for a purpose because there is something that they care about and that's what's driven them to start their business there's a problem that they want to solve or something that they're really passionate about and that translates really well to storytelling you know if you engage somebody like us who knows how to help you 
develop that story and develop that passion into something that's visually compelling and coherent. I mean, you're already, you know, 10 steps ahead of the ahead of the game because you're coming into it with something that's really that's really special. It's just about, you know, shepherding that and polishing that into something that connects with people. We know that the best um, and the most successful, you know, kinds of, of marketing and communications are those that connect with people on an emotional level. Uh, and, and the brands that we work with, luckily, you know, are starting out with, um, with a story that, you know, should do just that if it's told the right way. So, yeah, they're, they're a bit ahead of the game. Wonderful. Matt Siegel, thank you for joining me on Purpose Day. Thanks so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.